0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Hey friends, I know it's been a while since I've posted a podcast. It's been a very busy season for me and my family and uh, really excited to share this conversation with you. Uh, this is actually obviously not my typical recording setup. Uh, you probably hear more background noise right now I'm recording this on my phone, just this intro to this episode. This was uh, actually a conversation we had for the Belong Collective, the church that I pastor, but I felt like it was a really long conversation with Tom Longenecker that we broke into two Sundays and I felt like it would be really perfect for the podcast for you guys to check out this conversation, especially leading into, uh, the election week that we're heading into and just thought it would be some helpful, um, information or just a conversation, uh, that maybe, uh, encourages you, challenges you, inspires you. You might disagree with some of it. You might agree with some of it. You might be challenged by some of it. The hope is that ultimately, uh, we're growing together in understanding Jesus and politics, um, the uh, title for the series that we did is Politrix, uh, Losing the Kingdom, Gaining the World, and just talking about how so often the political season and climate uh, tricks us into losing the kingdom and gaining the world. So may you gain the kingdom this season, season and, um, and just keep in perspective everything. So blessings to you. Enjoy this conversation with me and Tom Longenecker. So I am here with Tom Longenecker, welcome TBC. We are going to have a conversation about, of all things, politics. And we're calling it Politrix, losing the kingdom, gaining the world. And so for the next couple weeks, we're going to uh, be talking about a number of things. And so, Tom, welcome. Why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself if they've never met you before?
1: Yeah, uh, I don't know where to begin. Uh, We live here in Derry Township. Uh, my wife and all the gingers who you might see at the Long Collective are kind of part of my extended family here. Uh, I'm a therapist and an inpatient drug and mental health facility in Ephrata. We've lived here in uh, Derry for about 10 years now, maybe a little bit more. And before that, we were in Los Angeles.
0: Very cool. And uh, tell me a little bit about any thoughts or work or just general um, approach to faith and politics the uh, the intersection, if you will, of the church and faith and yeah. and politics because you and I have had a lot of conversations about this um, and uh, and i'm just curious as we get started here uh, how you approach this because this is obviously an interesting season we 're in where uh, this conversation isn't going anywhere over the next few weeks, especially, but probably over, who knows our lifetime. I don't know. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: I think, you know, one of the, one of the things with politics and religion is those are two pop topics that a lot of people don't talk about. Yeah. And that leaves us as a society and often as a church, uh, not having real skills to be able to talk about either one with any real kind of depth or finesse or nuance. Um, and obviously for the early church, the church itself was a politics. You know, it's the mm-hmm. the empire of Rome, and then they have the empire of the kingdom, and obviously those are in conversation, a very tensed conversation, and and pitting you know the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, um, in contradiction to any of the Caesars, any of the empires of Rome, emperors of Rome. So it's oh, really right. kind of in the in the DNA of the faith. But we've also seen across two thousand years, you know, um, oppression of any kind is needing a host it needs a colleague and religion and christianity in particular have often been really eager to link up with and you can kind of fill in the blank Mm. any kind of other ideology or economics or any kind of oppression um so it's it's really you know i think really germane to our faith but at the same time something that we have not really don't have a lot of really solid conversations in the church yeah um, that don't that don't get caught up in in also being kind of held in bondage to you know partisan politics or kind of escapist kind of approaches where that's that's too tawdry for us to get our fingers involved in um and you know oftentimes it, it ends up with or or even the idea that well god's just in control and so anything anything that happens is god's will you know i'm not really sure where where that really originates from that's not you know That's not even Calvin's predestination, so I don't know where that comes from. But but it's just one of those things I think we probably don't spend an awful lot of time to have really solid patient conversations.
0: Mm. Yeah, we're not not having a whole lot of patient conversations in general as a culture right now, right? (laughs) I think you brought up one really interesting thing right at the start there for many of us, if we've been in the church for any uh, amount of time, we've heard the phrase, Jesus is Lord. We've maybe even sang it in songs. We've maybe seen it written on church walls or, you know, in, I don't know. I've I've seen it everywhere growing up in the church. Um, I never thought of Jesus is Lord being a political statement until I went to Bible school and realized, whoa, this is meant to evoke an emotion and a connection to the empires, even of the day and a con and a contrast to it, like a different, uh, Lord, a different, you know, one who reigns. And so in the day, from what I understand, you know, Caesar is Lord was a common statement. Uh, and, and when the early Christians said Jesus is Lord, that would have been seen as a political statement like that. Like, so, A lot of times, I hear people say, "Well, Jesus wasn't political, and the early church wasn't political, but it was actually pretty political, right?" Like, would you agree with that?
1: I I mean, the the Caesar's Lord was on the coins. Yeah, I think on the flip side, or at least on some other coins, it was and on peace, goodwill uh, on earth, goodwill peace towards men. Or I'm I'm messing that up a little bit, but you know, Yeah. um, yeah. So, so obviously, when the angels sing, when the when the churches are retelling the story of the birth of Christ it's very clear that this is a king unlike the others and this is a kingdom unlike the others and you know we see that whole issue of power is flipped upside down um so here you know we get that that song in philippians of uh you know even though equal to god jesus he becomes like a dolos a slave Mm -hmm. And it's poured out, you know, his, his, his power is poured out. So it just flips it all around. So, but for the first, for people in the first century for the believers in the first couple centuries, obviously they're hearing these things because they have heard this word, this rhetoric before they've heard these words before. Um, but you're inserting Jesus into that. And obviously the, the story of Jesus, you know, who the, who's actually the victim of the empire. Yeah. Executed by the empire. Um, really flips that around. So yeah, so I think for early church, they had a really strong sense of them as an alternative kind of community and very much in a critique of empire and all the things that made safety and made peace. And it's so all that gets questioned in the
0: early church. And, and there's even kind of some false politics happening, even within the story of Jesus of the, from the standpoint of like the disciples saw Jesus as a King, like David that was going to, uh, free them from Roman oppression and set reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And, um, so, so they kind of had that ideology about who Jesus would be. And then, and then even when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday and the representation of the Palm fronds being almost like a, you know, um, Hebrew flag of sorts. Right. Uh, and like, that's a whole political statement that Rome would have seen and even been concerned about probably of like, is this going to be the year where we have to deal with an uprising because they constantly had concerns about Passover week being obviously the week that and we're we're in a series where we're going to be covering Passover here soon. We're in the book of Exodus, but uh, ultimately Passover being this time where the 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 Hebrew people celebrated um, their you know, uh, release from slavery, their freedom, and so every time when they come back together to celebrate this festival of freedom, uh, Rome has to be a little extra concerned about the potential that um, they may get the idea that they should be granted freedom, and so like there's a lot of political statements, even just with weaved into almost, I, I don't want to say every story, but I even think of like the coin Jesus asked, "Are you should I should I." should I uh, pay taxes? And this was a hot debate of the day. Like you either pay taxes to Rome to appease them so you can continue to have, you know, your temple and everything else. Or you say, no, we're going to revolt and not do that. And you had these dagger men who wanted to revolt and do that. And Jesus gets thrust into the middle of this like debate. And he's like, well, whose face is on the coin? Give to Caesar what Caesar's. And he kind of, you know, a lot of people use the the language of third way. He kind of throws it a wrench into that whole conversation. He's like, you can give it to him, but you're not giving it to him for the reason of appeasement, which is kind of the primary, you know, purpose of that day, but almost as if it's my kingdom is above this petty conversation about whether or not we give to Caesar, or, you know, whether or not we pay taxes. I don't know. So speak a little bit about some of those stories of Jesus, where we see politics weaved in. It's it's I I've become, I've come to see it as inseparable the amount of times where Jesus is referencing the politics of his day, not necessarily picking a side partisan wise, but that politics is part of this, right?
1: Well, I think even, even when you look at the people that Jesus is surrounded by, I suspect he disappointed lots of people in the kind of Messiah that he fulfilled. Mm. You know, and there's a, you know, there's some theory about Judas Iscariot you know, mm. one of those dagger men you just referred to. Yeah. And, you know, expecting this Messiah to be the one who really restores Israel. Mm. And so, but, but just think about Jesus as that kind of figure who attracts these these kind of zealots, these, these people who are looking for the overthrow and the return of God to Israel, the return of God to the temple, mm-hmm. and which means pushing those Romans out. And uh, and, and the fact that the, he could be somebody who that they would get their imaginations tied up with, but then the great disappointment in seeing, well, this is after Palm Sunday, this is not who he's going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, there's that kind of theory that Judas is trying to push his hand to really push him to make that kind of statement and, and really kind of call for the the rebellion and the uprising, which he doesn't do.
0: Yeah, it it also seems like toward the end Jesus got even more I don't, I don't know aggressively political or outspoken. I mean, flipping the tables over at Passover with the money changers kind of you could see that as a political statement, but also as a statement of standing with the oppressed who are being you know taxed heavier. For their sacrifice in the temple at this time, because it's just he it's a religious reason in the sense of like this is the way that the people commune with God and he's seeing people take advantage of that, but it's also connected to the powers of the day, the political powers of the day. But what's what I think is interesting when you really think about that story, how many times had Jesus been to the temple and seen that? Mm. Like he had probably seen that the year before and the year before. And the year before, like, but this, this time he flips tables and like, you know, that puts him on, on the radar of the powers that be. And, uh, and ultimately there's an argument to be made that that political statement in a lot of ways, put him on a cross. Like, would he have been on a cross? Had he not flipped tables? Would he have been on a cross? Had he not come in with crowds and crowds, waving palm fronds? Like these are political questions because of the powers that ultimately held His fate in their hands. I don't know if he would have been put on a cross had he not even just done those two things, right?
1: Sure, sure. It seems you know he's really kind of pushing the line, making you know it becomes clearer, clearer, clearer. And again, you know in Jerusalem, power, politics, and religion aren't separate things. Mm -hmm. You know that's a that's more of a modern mindset that these are separate things. But yeah, he goes in, and you know if he's sitting at the tables, he's probably not going to throw those table over. If he's part of the structures of power and the way things are.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: So you, I think it's really accurate. In your part like he comes in. He he throws those tables over. That's what you can only do when you're coming into them. If you're sitting behind the table, unlikely you're going to throw that over. <laughs> if you're part of the if you're part of the structures and part of the way things are and how things have become be come to be accepted, why would you disrupt that?
0: Yeah, and and let's let's talk about one person who's deeply invested in that system and who's sitting behind those tables. And that's Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he's so invested in those tables and he's so invested in that structure, right? So he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he doesn't want his friends to see that he's interested in this Jesus guy and learning more about him. And then Jesus tells him he needs to be born again. And we use this born again language all the time in the church. But ultimately, this is the only person Jesus ever tells they need to be born again. And I I think it's because he's committed to that system that he needs like a rebirth from that system. And I, I wonder if the church today is committed to some kind of politic, whether that's, you know, a partisan politic, a way of seeing, you know, a separation in the sense of like our faith tradition has no politics in it. Like, or, you know, any number of things that we could commit to that ultimately we need to be born again from and maybe see more clearly what jesus might be drawing us into
1: sure look at all the ways that nicodemus has been named right you know yeah that that privilege he's he's part of a stable system um and you know, it's kind of reminds me a little bit of the ways when we talk about needing to come out from whiteness
2: you mm. know when we talk
1: about just uh, just kind of recognizing just our participation in racism and white supremacy you know it's not a matter of, you know just dis- dismissing the color of my skin but but all the other things that put me behind the table to be born again from above Mm. is requiring that stepping away from all the things that have just been handed to me. And I assume this is just how the world is. And then Jesus comes and questions that.
0: Yeah. It also forces about a certain amount of humility because, you know, I have three children when they were born, they didn't know anything. Mm. They had, they had to look to me to care for them. They had to look to me for knowledge. They had to look to me for any guidance or wisdom. And it's like, I think when you bring up that, it's like, what does it look like for us to look to others? for empathizing with their experience and understanding the worldview. Does that make sense? Like, What does it look like for us to consider um, someone else's lived experience? Because whether we like it or not, all of us have lenses in our politics that we've picked up from our experience. Um, Maybe some from our religion, but largely it's probably been our relationships and our experience that have shaped our, our view. And to the extent that we allow others and our experience with others to inform that we tend to get a more, maybe the way of saying it is an ecumenical politic, like a a broader, more diverse politic. We tend to, to have other people influencing that. Have you, have you noticed, this is a good question kind of personally, have you noticed over your lifetime, your politics shift as you've grown in experience or, um relationship with others
1: you know certainly as as well as my faith you know mm-hmm. um if if I had the same faith and understanding as when I was baptized, yeah. that's a problem today that. that would be a problem if that has not shifted or changed, so I would like to think that's that's a good thing yeah yeah I, I think certainly my politics or, and also my understanding of politics has changed. I think one of the things that's really difficult and that's kind of what you're pointing out is just all the things we bring, all the filters we bring, and just. A growing awareness of all those different voices that have touched us and formed us and speak to us is a really key way into this because it, it introduces a level of humility um, and also just a level of self awareness. So, you know, I think sometimes I'm gonna to have to recognize the things that I'm invested in that might be in that might have a tension with my faith. And this isn't to justify my going ahead with that tension with that thing but actually just to be able to name it is key because that's starting to build some kind of self-awareness. And so to build some kind of confessional awareness of how I've been formed, why that influences me to think a certain kind of way, how that influences me, how I approach scripture um, is I think a real growing edge. And it's probably one of the things I think is really important when we come to, when we come to talking about politics in general and voting in particular, is to be able to name more honestly and confessionally like Nicodemus, the task that Jesus lays before Nicodemus is to really kind of lay aside and become aware of all the ways he's been named. Mm. Um, I I kind of sometimes talk about this with my patients as as learning to speak confessionally, and I'm sure there's a better way to talk about it, but simply to start to be able to name, why do I think this way? Where am I getting these ideas? Uh, What are the traditions that are already speaking to me? And they Mm. they sometimes speak louder than the gospel or the gospel Mm. tradition. Um, you know, you know, Paul talks about, you know, we see through a glass dimly. Well, he's right. We don't get the whole, we don't get the whole picture. So Mm -hmm. the other part of that is I think there's some real freedom because if I had the faith when I was a 13 year old and that never changed, that's, that would be a real problem. If Mm -hmm. my understanding of politics and a Christian in, in, you know, the wider society, if that hadn't changed since that time too, well, that would be a real problem. And I think part of the ability to speak confessionally is here's where I stand today. This is what I'm understanding today. And I recognized 20 years ago, I understood this somewhat differently. And that also means that I, I will likely, if I keep engaged, if I keep aware, if I keep you know, bringing this as part of my life of prayer and involvement in church and thinking and talking and being with others and listening to stories, well, hopefully in another 10 to 20 years, that'll shift as well too. I'm not stuck to that principle, to that position. because so mm-hmm. I think that's one of the places where this is why it's so difficult for us to talk about faith and politics because we get into positions. Mm. Okay. And those positions might be good positions, but we, you know, when once we stand in a position that I have to start to defend the position, but the, you're
0: behind the table, I'm
1: behind the table. That's really, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we probably need to really work at learning how to, how to be confessional, how to speak confessionally, live confessionally and develop that awareness of yeah, how have I been named? What are the assumptions I bring to this table? What What are the, you know, what are the real values at stake? Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the things where some people, you know, we can become real single issue voters.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And this, some of those issues, yeah, they're, they're, they are a significant, significant ones. But sometimes they're, you know, we, we should really be able to go back and like, well, why is, why is this, why does this tantamount? Why does this get priority? Why is this at the top of the heap? Um, does it demand that kind of loyalty from me?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like why am I so committed to this table? Because maybe Jesus wants to flip it over. Like I mean, I I mean, that's uh it can be difficult if for us, like that's something that we've our experience, our relationships have informed us sitting behind that table, right? I think one of the big things I would say, whatever your table is, like we're gonna keep that very general because I think that's important because ultimately um there's such a broad politic right um but whatever that table is having the humility to say who does this table and the power i hold sitting behind it affect how is it how does it affect them does that in any way look like the fruits of the spirit um and so whatever that issue is whatever that one issue is i think beginning to 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 even examine um not necessarily the importance of that position as if you're not defending it, but more trying to get a broader understanding of who is this affecting and how well do I know their stories? Because there's been, you know, I I share this all the time around issues of race until I lived in a, I think it was 98% African-American and Dominican American community in Boston area. I had no clue even other than what I had seen on TV, quite honestly, the black experience in America until I got to be in relationship and literally live within a community of people where I could start to have relationships, build friendships, um, and hear stories that ultimately challenged what I thought and, uh, or what I was handed, right? What, what my worldview lens was. Um, And so some of us need to actually seek to intentionally be exposed to some of the, I guess, uh, to intentionally expose ourselves to the other side of the table, who this might be affecting. I think, I think staying with that table analogy, for example, I might be someone who's just trying to make a living for my family. And I say, you know what, Passover's the one week a year where I can make the most money to get me through the year. Does that make sense? And so I jack prices up, I exploit people, but that's just, that's the game. But like, what if I actually saw this person who, you know, Passover for them was this this struggle to even be able to buy a sacrifice to commune with God in this way. And they, uh, they were concerned that they weren't going to be able to uh, make a sacrifice in the temple on Passover. And if I was aware of their experience, it might open me up to an understanding of like, Oh, me and my hustle, if you will, (laughs) of like trying to exploit these people, is actually like, it is exploitation. Maybe I maybe I didn't see it that way. I just saw it as me feeding my family or me caring for myself. But I actually have to hear someone else's story. And in hearing someone else's story, when I go to the other side of the table, I get that perspective. It's hard for us, I think, to really go to the other side of the table and listen. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that is a practice um, that I think we would do much better if we were able to just listen better. I don't know. I don't And I don't know that there's any real easy way of saying, here's how to do that. It, I often struggle to listen as well. So it's not, it's not easy. It's difficult. to. Well, to, again, I think
1: these are some spiritual practices of learning to be confessional, to be aware of what's going on within me Yeah. And how, how, why I bring, what I bring to the table. And then the idea that I should be able to talk and others listen, as opposed to slowing things down and learning to, be listened clear, carefully and closely, mm. um, you know, as well as and the other part of that is even learning to listen to Scripture, you know, because we bring a lot of those assumptions to Scripture, you know, yeah. you know, um, you know. And then Jesus, like I think you asked earlier, like some of the political agenda of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, that's not how you phrased it, but you know, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. You know, when we talk about politics, we're talking about policy at some level, as opposed to just you know, uh, kind of pushing our own specific agenda on a specific issue. It's about how does this play out for broader good? And then Jesus starts to talk about in the kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. you know, and in the Greek, it's not imperative. It's not, you have to be poor to be blessed. He doesn't, he he writes, it's written in Greek anyway, and more of a descriptive. Okay. Just so happens that in the kingdom of God, in the realm of God, where God's will is the poor are blessed. You know, and so if we start to like let that be a cornerstone, I think it's really difficult to be people of Jesus and of Jesus' vision and in Jesus' spirit if we don't pay attention in some ways to the things that Jesus talks about. And, yeah. he, and this is this is a real good format. If he, this is a good platform, I guess for Jesus, if we're going to be people of Jesus, is to pay attention to what does he say that world looks like. And you know, that is the people who often are not listened to. Mm. You know, as we walk through those those different statements. Um, but what he's saying is in the world in which God is honored, these people are also honored. These people mm-hmm. are blessed. These kind of vocations of, you know, of being the righteous peacemakers and seekers after justice, you know, they, these people are, are lifted up. And it's the meek people that we walk over all the other time that those folks are actually given credence that they're paid attention to, which goes back again to like, well, who are we listening to? yeah opposed to speaking all the time no that's... I think that's a good platform i think it's really hard to be people of jesus if we're not paying attention to the things that jesus speaks of and particularly the sermon on the mount sermon on the Plain. just really seem to highlight they really kind of anchor in our keystones for so much of what jesus is about who does he pay attention to how does he speak to people who does he how is he in contact with people who who is jesus with people
0: um mm. Yeah, that I think of that and I think of the sheep and the goats. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, that parable. I mean, and I, I still argue that I don't know if it's a parable because I think when you break it down, it doesn't it doesn't fit a lot of the rules of other parables. It's just kind of like Jesus teaching. He's certainly teaching in an analogy of like a future potential tense and like uh the sheep and goats are metaphors in that sense, but uh I think he's being very direct about the value of and the emphasis that we should have on caring for the poor and caring for those who have needs among us. And, um, and, you know, the consequences of not doing so in a lot of ways. And, 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 you know, whether that is allegorical or, or not, it does not seem to be um, the way of Jesus to ignore those who have need around you. Um, It seems like Jesus is quite concerned about how you, um, care for those who have need around you. And part of politics is um, how we organize, how we care for one another, how we distribute resources. These are all policy realities. Um, and so the way of Jesus should in some way as Christians influence that and our call to care for the poor. Right. I mean, just to some degree.
1: I think, I mean, I remember your sermon where you, you preached um, and you were raising i I'm not sure if this is really a parable and you know, if we understand the word sacrament at all in terms of this is a place where God is, mm-hmm. well, I think you could make a really good argument that Jesus is teaching, maybe not with the word sacrament, but he's saying, but this is where God is. Yeah. This is where I am. Yeah. So if you want to be, if you want to be with where the, the word of God is, this is where you're going to be. This is, and this is where you're going to be able to perhaps read the word of God as well. Mm. You're going to be able to come to the scripture because you've been in these dusty cornered places that are forgotten. Yeah. People who are easy to forget and looking at the things that cause that.
0: Yeah. And and being concerned about the things that cause that your, your own involvement in those things, society's larger involvement. And here's the deal. One of the things I think that's really interesting to reflect on is that like Jesus doesn't tell anyone how to vote, but no one voted in jesus day caesar was caesar right like caesar didn't give anybody a vote right and it's like (laughs) what was that nobody was asking for their opinion yeah exactly so my my thing is is like as much as the empire and caesar give me a vote I, i i should probably consider my role to participate and throughout history there's been a lot of different christian opinions on participation in uh, politics and and uh, and electoral process, and they'll be you know we have uh, a tradition at the Belong Collective in uh, the Anabaptist tradition, the Brethren tradition, um, and in that there are people who um, do not involve themselves in politics from a voting perspective, out of this kind of um, you know disengagement. Speak to that a little bit. What, what do you feel as a Christian? Our call is to even participate. In empire because there, I, I actually think I, I understand someone who says I'm part of another kingdom. So I will not participate in the politics of the empire of this kingdom. Yet I have heard a lot of critique on Anabaptists in that. Usually that's coming from a pretty privileged position when you say that, because it's probably the empire is probably not affecting you as much as it might be affecting others or you're failing that your opportunity to care for your, you know, brother or sister who um, your vote could make a difference. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting conversation. I feel like I want to know your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's thinking specifically of, of the Anabaptist tradition and, you know, and today Amish and old order groups often avoid voting at least on the national level Yeah, I mean, as, as a whole. I know that's not always consistent. And it was kind of the idea that that's the kingdom of man. That's the kingdom of the sword. Mm -hmm. and we need to be remain distant and and withdrawn from that. And, uh, um, you know, and so they developed that, but they were also persecuted and pushed out. Nobody was asking for their opinion. They didn't want their opinion. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, that developed as their own two kingdom theory. It just happened to divide people between communities, you know, whereas the other mainstream reformers developed their own two kingdom theologies. So Martin Luther and Calvin had theologies where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, and that's the language they would use separated a person internally
2: mm-hmm. so your
1: body is is still given to the kingdom of the world mm-hmm. but your spirit your soul is given to the kingdom of God but that creates this real kind of schizophrenic kind of <laughs> dynamic inside a person because you're really pulled. okay yeah and you know um, they've even laid laid the rise of Nazism in Germany on, on Luther because of, of that kind of idea that oh I, can, I remain spiritually connected even though my body and my other loyalties are given to the rise of, of this kind of other kingdom here. Mm. And so, you know, I think we have to remember when those Anabaptists developed that there was other, there were other two kingdom theologies going on at the same time. The other is they were from at that point from a position being persecuted and carried that over to this country and other places where they remained very withdrawn, isolated, um, and could probably remain somewhat ignorant of how they still benefited from being part of empire. Mm. Yeah, because if you're going to war, for instance, you might still benefit because of milk prices or selling wool or any of those other kinds of things because it's a wartime effort. Um, I think okay. that, that it's it's probably just naive in some way. Again, I think it requires that kind of confessional approach um, that uh, of being involved. Now, I do think there's some problems. Like one, in a democracy, at least the way we're set up, to whatever, and we can you know talk about the ways that voting does and does not shift shift the bigger kind of tectonic yeah. plates of, of of stuff. But at you know, one level, even at its best, it is still kind of a majority rule of fifty point one percent telling the other forty nine point nine percent what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's difficult from a from a kingdom perspective. So I just think we have to recognize that uh, you know that never really truly happens. But is the idea of majority Wins, mm-hmm. and you know, I think you know, being able to pay attention to those who, who are on the outside who lose, um, being able to pay attention to the voices that that don't get heard, um, comes back right, comes back to us at that point as well. Yeah, needing to pay attention um, to the dissent, voices of dissent are something that I think are really important for the church. It's important for society. Um, doesn't mean we follow that necessarily, but paying attention to that and giving it, it time to be heard. So I think that's one of the things that democracy can do. Now, at its better part, it can also kind of force conversations, the kind that you and I are having right now. Yeah. Is to be able to talk about those things that are really, that we have people have passion for because it's, it's speaking, you know, really to a lot of the same things that religion speaks to, which is vision, it's hope, the things that make us safe. Um, how should we distribute resources? You know, I think those are kinds of things that, that it really speaks to. And it forces that should force that kind of conversation. Yeah. Um, um. I think one of the difficulties with voting in our, in our society is that so often um, Christians and the
0: church can be used. Oh yeah. Oh my God. And, and so,
1: and oftentimes unknowingly. Yeah. Um. Uh, another piece would simply be, um, you know, how invested are we in how things are? Yeah. How invested are we in, in keeping the tables the way they are, you know, keeping the system as it is because, uh, you know, as a relatively educated straight white male, I tend to benefit from a lot of the, the ways I've been raised up. I tend to benefit from things as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so flicking the tables doesn't necessarily benefit me, mm-hmm. but one of, once we get invested in how things are, Truth telling becomes a victim. How how mm. how radically, how honestly, rawly—I don't know that rawly is really a word—but how raw to get yeah. into to, to, to truth telling, mm. and mostly to myself as well as to others. Like how 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 close can I get to being able to know and see the truth about myself? Yeah. The more we're invested in the way things are, I think that 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 can really start to tick away at our ability to tell the truth. And that's one of the problems I think with, with being, with the, uh, you know, really identifying with parties.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you talk about truth telling, you're, you're talking about like that prophetic voice. I used to think of like prophetic voices being like the ability to like tell the future, like that was prophecy, future telling. But I think sometimes prophecy is just telling the truth about the reality of the way things are when everyone else is ignoring it. Right like telling the telling the truth about what's taking place and what's happening um i even think about my journey with you know the lgbt community as i'm having experiences and stories and hearing things and then like telling the truth about what i'm hearing about as people are experiencing the intersection of being queer and being in the church and how that's affecting their lives and and it's like people call that prophetic not because I'm telling the future, but because I'm telling the truth in the midst of like a moment where people don't want to acknowledge the truth or wrestle with it or deal with it, or it's just, I'm too invested in the table to go around and see it from the other side. Right. I don't, I can't have this table be flipped because there's just too much at stake. Um, and I think that kind of, um, I, I don't know, like, I don't want to call it whistleblower mentality, but I do like how Tommy Airy, when we had him for, um, he, he had mentioned that, like that, that kind of spirit of sorts is kind of the reality of like blowing the whistle on things that are like true, like, Mm -hmm. and being ignored. And, uh, and there's value in that from a political perspective, when you see marginalization, when you see a policy that's hurting people, um, how, how do we, how do we come together and make that better it'd be one thing if the empire didn't have a system for making that better and we just had to deal with it and be oppressed um and we were in rome for example like there's no way to change this you know uh, um but we actually have a process you know of voting considering who represents us actually going down and sitting down with those representatives which is something i did for the first time this year by the way um and and uh And you know, had some legitimate policies change because of that. So I mean, I I think uh, (laughs) I wonder if my engagement with some some local political leaders just in a room had more influence than any vote I've ever cast over my lifetime, Um, as far as like actual legislation changing influence. And so like we have options even beyond voting to engage in politics. And sometimes it's really not that time consuming. Um, it's just us seeing something, saying something, drawing attention to something and, you know, uh, encouraging others to, you know, consider something, you know? Uh, yeah.
1: I think, I think one of the issues we also have sometimes is uh, when we focus on politics as how we're voting, and what legislation is being passed through whatever assembly? These are valid forms of politics, but it can it can distract us from the real reality that church itself is politics. Yeah, church yeah. itself is a witness. Is a way of of distributing resources. It is a way of seeking a common good. Mm-hmm. And some of our most important vet investments is in making ourselves available to others at a real grassroots level. You know, learning how to listen to scripture learning how to be confessional, uh, learning how to make messy peace, Okay, learning how to kind of give and take. I mean, these are some of the things, the practices of the church, learning how to receive, um, learning how to pray, but, but building that kind, of, that kind of place on the grassroots that is able to hear the stories, that's able to receive God's spirit and you know, become that, receive the blessed community or the beloved community that, that we, we, we hear King and others talk about. Uh, That I think really kind of comes from a lot of the probably the John epistles a lot, a lot of, but through the Gospels as well. Um, It can dissuade us from the real reality, the real work of politics. Mm. Is like the early church receiving and working out the difficult things of being a church together, being an ecclesia together. Because when we think about Paul, Paul took on a really risky experiment in trying to transcend all the other kind of barriers and making no distinction between citizens of the empire. And those who were not citizens of the empire, you know, and so, you know, you can critique Paul for never, never uh, condemning slavery, but he's also working with Ecclesia where owner slave owners and slaves are part of the same experimental community,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, which in his world would be really unheard of. Yeah. Um, But I think that's the the real, some of the real work for Christians for followers of Jesus is, is that kind of involvement
0: and not to mention the politics of the leadership of the church with Paul and Peter, not really getting along. Like we don't talk about, we don't talk about that. Like we don't talk about the fact that like they had different perspectives and visions and like ways of, of, uh, I don't know, you know, like there, there was a lot of disagreement in the early church. We kind of act like this was some utopia, but there was legitimate, um, just knock out drag drag down plates yeah
1: any any other church council
0: yeah yeah over over obviously for us we look over it because it was over circumcision like or something like so for us it's like well that's not relevant to us but it's like well just make it about any other thing uh, uh that we're dealing with today or that we've dealt with and they're dealing with that's a political issue in a sense it's how how do we organize how do we include people who haven't been a circumcised do they need to be circumcised now uh, as adults how, how do we include these people like that is a question of how we organize groups which is a political question like you can call it a spiritual question and it is that too because it's connected to theology but how do we include these people in, in what way are we going to organize also you know even thinking about financial resources how are we going to support how are, wh- what are what choices are we going to make there Uh, These are all choices we make as, you know, the Belong Collective, our board. We have a board. That's a political thing. We have bylaws. That's political. We have, you know, we, and and this is where I go back to saying, like, we think of politics as this dirty word. And I think we so often just associate politics with partisan politics. And it's like, politics benefits us in so many ways that we often don't have, you know, (laughs) the uh, ability to acknowledge the ways that we benefit from it or the ways that it's working for us and uh, and the good that it does for us to organize and to and to consider and to create, you know, structures that benefit as many people as possible. Even thinking like the belong collective is, a, you know, we, we say this is our tagline. The belong collective is a Jesus shaped community practicing the way of love for the good of all. You could even argue that is a political statement and that we're talking about the good of all and that our compass is going to be love in that. Like, yeah, speak to that a little bit. I, I don't, well, you know, you think about Jesus,
1: he's informed by, you know, the political aspirations of the Hebrew scriptures that come before him and the, the, uh, the image of Shalom, which was mm. aspired to, you know, this integrated whole, whole peace. You know everybody's sitting on their own vine and fig tree um and that's kind of you know that's kind of one of the the structures one of the kind of the main supporting beams of of the hebrew bible of of the hebrew vision for life um and so again that that feeds right into the tagline for belong collective but it also feeds certainly feeds and informs a lot of what jesus is working with Mm. this idea of shalom and that should be extended that should be available um, cause it's not just peace in terms of absence of conflict. It's, it's this peace of wholeness of there's yeah. enough, you know, yeah. there's, it's not just adequate. There's, there's enough, you know, that, that whole idea, that image again. And I think so much of this is the, the images that were given from the scriptures are, um, you know, somebody's re- relaxing, you know, now they're sitting on their lawn chair underneath their, uh, I don't know. They're pear tree and evergreen. I don't know what it is, but, (laughs) but, but, but the, 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 the idea of a day after a day of hard work, after a week of work, there's, there's an opportunity to recreate. Yeah. And that idea of Shalom is obviously threaded through, um, of right relationships, you know, because in the, in the Hebrew Bible, when it talks about justice, um, and righteousness, we, we see that w- w- waffles a little bit in terms of translating that sometimes because it's this idea of right relationships, Relation- justice is when people are in the right relationship with one another and with God. Yes. And, and that requires that. And, you know, we Shalom feeds that idea, but that idea of justice also is what Shalom looks like. Shalom is kind of the practice mm. or the result of, of what this aspires for. Yeah. And I think that that that's really again something that your tagline, the tagline of the kind of Belong Collective, aspires for itself, it seems very like very much a shalom kind of image and vision for the world.
0: Definitely, so hundred percent.
1: I think that's really inspiring an awful lot of what Jesus is about. Um, and you see that played out in the Sermon on the Mount. You see that played out over and over again with how is he who is who is Jesus with these people. Another one would be that that is really picked up throughout the New Testament is kind of a, a new testament application of shalom which is communion eucharist mm. you know i think that's really where we get a sense of the economics of the kingdom of god you know paul talks about you know you shouldn't come having eaten already um, hmm. and that there should be you know this is a give and take yes. this is a place where where there's a, a sense of like we all bring something we're we're, we're you know he, he he folds that into sometimes the, like the multiplicity of gifts i think that's another key flavor here is like regardless of what you bring, you have gifts to bring. Yeah. It's not just to the not just to the, the practice of communion of bread and cup. It is that, it is that, it is that feast, you know, that, that mirrors, you know, uh, manna in the wilderness that mirrors the, you know, eventual great festive feast, wedding feast in revelation. We see it through and over and over again, that that's Jesus and the fishes and the bread um but it's what happens when we bring ourselves what's broken is blessed and shared but it's that mm. give and take i think that's really where we get a sense of like okay here's here's how you spread the resources of the community um acts 2 picks that up very yeah. clearly um, and i don't think we can disconnect those those kind of passages from each other they're very intricately t- intertwined you know again it's one of the practices of the church of learning communion
0: yeah and 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 you could even say. Like it just popped in my head when you said acts. I, it's a political decision to create deacons. Sure. To to you have this uh, distribution that's taking place of resources, right, to the widows, and ultimately certain widows are being overlooked, or at least they're. It's it's thought that they're being overlooked, and so the apostles decide we need to set up we can't do this. It's just too much for us, right? It's too much. Uh, so we need to delegate this to another group of people who are, you know, uh, going to be caretakers of this ultimately that are faithful to the church. Um, and so they choose these people to to do that. And, uh, and in essence, people who had the gift of serving others who, who they had seen, you know, doing this and, and they, uh, they appoint those people to do that. That's, I just thought, like that's a political decision by the early church to uh, to to scale that, and then even to appoint those people to do that is an election of sorts. Now, now I'm not going to say that in the sense of democracy, but I guess I'm saying like it is a process of choosing someone to represent those people and ensure that those resources were fairly and adequately delegated. Um, we just see politics all throughout the Bible because I think as human beings, we're political, like how we organize matters and, and, it, and it, it shapes our relationships. You just said we need to be rightly related to God and one another and how we organize in so many ways creates all kinds of implications about how well we are able to love one another, how, how well we're able to be in right relationship with one another.
1: And so much of what we see playing out in the book of Acts is you're right. Yeah. Needing to care for these people was just too much. Deacons are political agents. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's an extension of communion. Yeah. And in some yep. ways, in some ways it witnesses back to what communion tells them to do in the first place. You know, how do we welcome people to the table? How do we ensure mm-hmm. that people have, you know, ha- are taken care of? How is the goodness of the community spread around? How, how is that? How is shalom? That's not the term they use,
2: mm-hmm. but I think
1: Shalom really does feed that idea of communion, of Eucharist, that, of being, of giving the meals of Thanksgiving. Yeah. And it just it, it's, But it's embedded through Jesus' practices of breaking bread, sharing it, taking fish, dispersing it. Um, and we find that, that when that's done, there is enough. That's, that's, kind of that, that's kind of that radical hope that we see in Jesus is that when we're actually able to come together in these ways There's more than what we expected.
0: Yeah. This actually has me wanting to go back to the words of James and do like a word study where he says true religion is caring for the widow and the orphan. How much of that word religion could be rooted in some type of politic? You know what I mean? Like, like in a sense, like, like this, you know, and I don't know what that word is, but in the sense of like, um, the early church's commitment to care for the widow and the orphan, um, there's a trueness in that, right? Whether it's religion or politics or whatever it is, it's their commitment to see that vulnerable community who ultimately may starve to death were they not to you know, intervene and choose to intervene on their behalf. Like that's, yeah, that's definitely in a lot of ways a political statement. Like,
1: and there's a lot of authenticity in that. And I think part of that is also, no matter what we do as people of faith, it's gonna be a witness of something.
0: Mm.
1: We're pointing yep. to what what we aspire to, what our hopes are. We're pointing to something, um, and yeah, uh, you know, whatever we do, it's going to reflect something. It might it might reflect Christ. It might not reflect Christ. Um, yeah, but, it, but it's going to be perceived in certain ways, and it's going to be pointing to something greater than itself. And I think that's kind of what you're you're pointing to, where yeah. where James, Pastor James, talks about this is authentic religion. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a witness. And what makes it authentic is it's witnessing authentically to God's Christ and what mm. God is doing in the story of Jesus. Um,
0: Definitely. Yeah. 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 I think so. So let's talk about this for a moment and then we I want to get into this top 10 list that you created, uh, that you sent me. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so we've seen, as you just said, Um, that we've seen people who are bearing witness to the name of Jesus in ways that don't seem to really reflect his teachings, um, how he lived, how he, you know, loved, we'll we'll just break it down to the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, um, when we think of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus and that being ultimately, I think it's fair to say that was the compass of Jesus's life, self-sacrificial love um, and not only embodying that, but encouraging his followers to do so with that being our our compass, we'll just agree that that's the compass, right? Um, That's a, first of all, let's just be honest as a human being, that's a hard standard to live up to always as a public figure that standard gets 10 times harder because everything you do is under scrutiny and then as a political figure you're asked to bring um your faith in a sense to your politics and how you do things so i want to give a lot of grace to politicians who are ultimately first and foremost people and then there are also public figures under scrutiny and then they have to apply their faith, assuming they have faith, to their politics in some way, or they have to keep this, you know, separation. Um, what I guess I'm getting at is you had mentioned earlier that the church has so often been co-opted in a lot of ways for, for partisan politics. And I think sometimes I, I see political leaders, and I just want to be clear, I've seen this on both sides. Um, use their faith as like this, like whistle to blow, to kind of get votes in churches, right? Like if I say that thing and you can just almost, I don't know, maybe it's just me as a pastor. You can just sometimes tell there's just an inauthenticity to it. Like it's just, this does, this seems forced. This seems like some campaign aide told you, if you say that you'll get all the votes in this space. And, um, and I mean, we obviously know in the nineties, the moral majority, I went to Liberty University so I know Jerry Falwell right I mean in the sense of like I went to his school so um so like there's no there's no secret that Jerry Falwell and and many others at that time influential church leaders were trying to influence politics um and and, and there's been influencers on the other side too I guess I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that but then also like how do we avoid that how do we avoid the trap of jesus being co-opted because sometimes i think should i even be applying jesus in any way to my vote because it just seems like everyone trying to tell me to apply jesus to my vote is just using jesus am i just using jesus like does that make sense like yeah.
1: yeah well, mean, here's the thing um most everybody loves Jesus. Yeah, or, or likes or likes Jesus. Okay, not, not, maybe <laughs> maybe not everybody loves Jesus, but, but you have know, you, got you've got people across the spectrum. Generally, people have a favorable opinion of Jesus. Sure. You know? And who you know, was it? Was it? Be...
0: Was it? Was it Gandhi who said, "I love your Jesus or I love your Christ, but I struggle with your Christians" or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I think that was Gandhi. <laughs> yeah,
1: and um, you know, I think yeah and so but but Jesus is so therefore, particularly when lifted outside of the scriptures um is very malleable for people to use, just as Christians can be used mm. you know yeah because uh, he's and you know part of that's because because he's such a powerful figure, it speaks to people on so many different levels, but it usually requires lifting Jesus out of the scriptures you know taking jesus out of the jesus of, of memory you know? um, our friend Tommy Airy recently wrote. Uh it's just in the last couple of days I think that um uh, you know some of his own personal history was of of people who kind of leaned on scripture like a drunk leans on a lamppost as opposed to for support as opposed to looking to the lamp post for illumination. Um I think that's 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 probably a helpful kind of turn. Um I like that. That's you know, Tommy Airy. He tends to come up with
0: pretty good oh, stuff. Oh to- Tommy's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um I think, you know, there's probably no foolproof way
1: to walk through this. It's the messy stuff of life. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, part of that is, is again, to be start with a spiritual practice of learning to be confessional, learning to be aware. And I use the term confessions, like obviously to be aware of be able to name sin, but also to be able to simply name the truth of our lives, what's going on with us. You know, earlier when you were talking about truth telling, um, know, kind of the prophetic tradition, but we also have that in lament and psalms. you know, just, just kind of pouring out this is where I'm at right now in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. I think that image of, of the people of God as Psalms themselves is a a pretty powerful image because we're called at one level simply to speak the truth of our lives, knowing that we don't have the final word. The final word has not been given yet, Mm -hmm. but to be, but to engage in that kind of spiritual reflection, that's what we talked about earlier, where, you know, what side of the table do I sit on? Yeah. Um, what are the things that get me to where I'm at? What is influencing me in terms of how I approach the world, how I approach myself, how I approach others, how I approach Scripture, um, how I approach the political agendas that I see out in front of me? Yeah.
0: Do you think Do you think the church has a discernment issue right now?
1: I think it's probably always had a discernment issue. Sure. Um, it does seem to me that there's a you know real lack of um, uh, wisdom and discernment out there in the world these days. Um, I think that probably part of the issue, perhaps, is that we have so many voices, we have so many opportunities to hear so much, um, but it takes time and patience to learn to hear ourselves as much as other people. And this, mm-hmm. is, you know, this is not probably good church growth uh, kind of ethos, <laughs> but to develop a people who can learn, learn how to hear themselves and learn how to hear, hear others and yeah. to form a way to be more discerning but I really do think the church has certain kind of practices that as they fall by the wayside or, or are not picked up and practiced, and I don't, pre- I'm not pretending that we've ever done it well, mm-hmm. but we do have some practices that I think could help us. One of those is learning the practice of confession, you know, and not, not just putting that in that little niche of just speaking of sin, but in our, in our ways we failed or the ways we're not hitting the mark, but understanding confession as an ongoing reflection as an ongoing encounter with my inner self, my drives, becoming aware of what pushes me in certain directions. I think that's a key piece that's, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, dovetailing into the Sermon on the Mount, begin, begin from a place of being poor in spirit. Yeah. That's that's really where confession leads us to is, is to a place of humility.
0: Can, can I, can I share, I'm, so I grew up evangelical for the most part. I mean, I had some, uh, some Pentecostal roots, some, you know, Uh, Nazarene even in my background. Um, But I never really grew up in any faith tradition that encouraged confession, at least in the spiritual practices way. Like, I mean, if if it was confession, it was like you have a small group leader that you share your failures with. You know what I mean? Your sin failures, right? Um, But even as you just kind of expanded confession to being aware of your own inner voice, inner monologue, inner like um, thoughts and ideas and things that sometimes so much information's coming at us that we're not even processed. I, I think that that was another big piece of what you just said. You know, the internet has given us access to so much information. I used to tell parents this statistic uh, when I was a youth pastor um, I used to say your junior hire when you hand them that smartphone that can connect to the internet um, has more information than the president of the United States in the mid nineties had access to. They have access. And that's just crazy. When you think about it, like um, how quickly we've grown in access to information and how ultimately all that noise makes it even harder to hear one another, but even harder to, to spend times and, T- time to hear ourselves. And so I was going to say this, one of the things we tried, and I, I'm going to make a CrossFit analogy. Everybody can roll their eyes right now. Go ahead, roll your eyes. But one thing I'll say is in a CrossFit workout, you're usually doing a really hard workout. And one of the things you learn is that everything in your mind starts to tell you, just stop. You don't want to do this. It hurts. Mm-hmm. Stop don't do that. No, don't go that fast. Stop, slow down. Like, and you just, or you just hear this like negative talk of you can't do this. There's no way you're going to complete this. There's no way you're going to get this done. And the more and more you name it of just like, I talked really negatively to myself in that workout. Why did I talk so negatively to myself in that workout? The more you do that, the more you realize, wow, I have this voice in my head that lies to me a lot because I I did well in that workout, but I just told myself the whole time I wasn't going to be able to do well. How do I talk to myself in a more positive way? And so many of the athletes in CrossFit that do it at an elite level, self-talk is a big part of their process, that mental game of confessing to themselves that I got this, I can do this, I know I can do this. I And even if they're lying to themselves, like I literally listened to an interview with one CrossFit person who's like, I, when I have two rounds left, I just tell myself I only have one round left.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just tell myself that whole round this is the last round go hard. And like, and then when I get there, there's a round left, but that's okay. But like, I can lie to my, I can lie to that voice. And <laughs> it's like, they've manipulated that voice even so much that they they're like, I control that voice. Now that voice does not control me anymore. And I think sometimes we don't even know the ways we're manipulating our own selves in the negative talk we have toward ourselves or in the in the ways that we see things from a fear perspective instead of from a perspective of love. And, and so becoming aware of that inner voice, obviously, in a workout, it has its own implications. But I think in life and in faith and in family and in relationships, that voice is there also like. We've all been in a place where we're in a relationship with somebody and we're talking bad about ourselves. We're like, "Oh, I'm not lovable. That person can't love me through this. That person." And so um, we have negative self talk, and I'm certain it's applied to our politics. I'm certain it's applied to the ways that we organize and and relate to one another. Talk talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, no, I, it's, that's perfect. Yeah, because you know, and those those voices, those stories inside our heads and our hearts are so tempting.
0: Yeah, you
1: know and, and so, so it's like literally satanic you know in terms of like hasatan being the tempter it is yeah. to, to buy into this
2: mm. and
1: it's tempting to buy into the story of there's not enough mm. there's not enough of me there's not enough to go around and that's the whole story um when you get to the exodus uh you know into the wilderness mm-hmm. that's the temptation like oh now we're here is there enough yeah temptations, temptation and i think that's that's one of the temptations that leads us into our politics is is there enough
0: Mm, a fear
1: it's very yeah and and the gospel is saying yes shalom (laughs) christ Christ is enough god's vision is enough there's shalom there's and there's this practice of communion where we're taught again that what we bring (laughs) we break and bless and share we find yes Mm. there is enough it it requires faith to, to trust it but yeah but yeah i i i can't remember the greek word that kind of this conf- spirit of this uh, tradition of confession comes from, but it's, it's one applied to athletes, which is that, that honing hmm. stamina and discipline. And so confession is kind of piece, a piece of that. Of Look, like, at that. Look at, at that.
0: I said CrossFit. <laughs> it was right. It was right in line with the Greek guys. Like there you I, go. CrossFit,
1: of... CrossFit applies <laughs> universally. I think that's the, that's the point from that.
0: Oh man. Pastors making CrossFit analogies. It's gone off the rails. Um, Okay, no,
1: so <laughs> it's better than the standard pastors making football analogies. That that had its
0: day. That's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, ultimately, I do think confession, the practice of us even just growing an awareness of what we're even telling ourselves and calling it out, speaking it, saying it, reflecting on it, um, can have huge like implications and power um in at the very least us recognize cuz one of the things that initially happened when i started like thinking about this and reflecting on this was i would just hear that voice i would recognize that voice sooner does that make sense and i think i would recognize that fear i would recognize that like that negative talk that temptation like you said to 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 give in to that voice and I think sometimes maybe when we actually confess that we had a thought that was motivated by fear, and maybe even we acted on it, right? Um, and w- we confess that, we say that, we say that out loud. We maybe even find a friend and we tell them. Um, the more we do that practice, the more the moment that voice talks and the moment that fear begins to motivate us, we can actually see it faster. We we identify it faster, and that identification of it of it sooner can actually allow us to respond in a more loving way, instead of a fearful way in a more um, a a way that speaks to the way that God sees us instead of the way that this negative voice is trying to encourage us to see ourselves. Like, I think, I think that's really important. just even outside of the political conversation, I think it's going to help you as a human being, just be a a better person, but love more fully. um, And even love yourself, you know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is encouraging the love of you as a created being of, 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 of God that, that, that you are made in the image of God, that, that you are lovable and, uh, and and in so much you should love yourself, not that you should be the center of your world, but ultimately that you should have a healthy love of yourself. And that out of that flows our ability to love one another. And um, yeah.
1: Yeah. But I, but, but I think it's perfect. It's like, as you become more aware of that, that dialogue inside, you become quicker at recognizing it, mm. you know? And that's yeah. part of that whole, whole contemplative tradition of, of being aware of ourselves and what's going on within us. And I also think, you know, the New Testament talks so much about the powers and principalities. And so another piece is, can we learning to start to develop a recognition of our loyalties to those principalities and powers, you know? Um, and I'm not sure we always get it right, You know, there's certain things I drive 45 minutes a day to go to effort of where I work. Mm. So that means I'm putting gas in a car, uh, which means that uh, I benefit because we fight wars over oil, access to oil, Mm. which means we put the lives of young women and men at stake for my ability to go to my job. Um, I'm so caught up in that principality and power, that way of being, I don't really envision myself breaking out of it anytime soon. Mm. Uh, I have that awareness. I'm not, I'm not sure that's actually moving me to any kind of like direct action. I know people who, who, who have done that kind of thing. They, they make decisions about lifestyle because they want to separate from, from that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm not sure we're always going to you know be perfect. We're not always going to get it. Even, even when we're becoming aware of how we participate and how some of our loyalties to these other greater systems, um, we you know we do live in a fallen world and and I participate in fallen things. There's a fallenness to me, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's that's another piece of, of learning and recognizing it doesn't justify, but that growing awareness is a piece of greater humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a piece of greater sense of a, of connection to the larger world. Uh, and you, so- you
0: you could say that growing awareness may be the spark that allows for an imaginative alternative that isn't uh that that ultimately doesn't have to inflict war on our world for a resource to be had um i i gotta believe that many of the people who have had those imaginative ideas or innovative ideas that that create a more just world at one point, maybe even participated in that injustice, and then reflected on that, uh, discerned that they didn't want to be a part of that, and uh, and in that tension that you're describing, uh, envisioned a new alternative. Does that make sense? Like, like I mean, I I, I think that's so much of uh, when I when I think of innovators, that's usually some of their processes that they were affected by it. You know,
1: I think that's that's often what what drives that passion. You know, whether we see Um, you know, through history, you know, abolitionists who were slave traders, part of part of that, or they saw and were able to be moved by humanity or they were able to, you know, something grabbed them and motivated them, but there was a personal connection a personal sense of involvement. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So, so you emailed me, uh, kind of a top 10 list. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about why you came up with this top 10 list, what it was either in reference to or just the conversations you were having that made you say, I'm going to write down this top 10 list uh, of, of things.
1: I was actually just responding to somebody, like a lot of things, particular things, uh, who was um, responding to just the political agenda and arena right now and listed some things that Christians should be voting about. And I was looking at them and I wasn't, I wasn't sure which of these are things that Jesus really valued. Mm. um and so it got me just thinking in terms of responding to that specific person in terms of what how is jesus formed you know what are if you know what are the things that that touched and formed jesus so we can we mm-hmm. hear the, the story of shalom as that overarching mm-hmm. um image from the hebrew bible in its connection to those right relationships and then in jesus you know we hear this uh that hymn again, that speaks of kenosis, that even though being equal to God, Jesus pours himself out mm-hmm. and takes on the form of a slave. And that, that seems to be one of those kind of, uh, major buttresses in the gospel and understanding the nature of Jesus and what power is, um, and who we see Jesus. Cause it just, once we that that's a real highlight, it just illuminates as Tommy spoke early, you know, when I referred to Tommy earlier, it <laughs> illuminates how we understand Jesus that mm-hmm. over and over again, he is often undressing himself of power that he could claim coercive power anyway.
0: I love it. We don't, we don't just lean on the illuminator. We look where the illuminator's pointing. Look yeah. what we look, what it's shining light on. That's great. So, okay. So let's go through this top 10 list. Would you call this like a top 10 list of like, how would you like header this top 10 list of people? Like it's not like a how to vote guide necessarily, but like a, uh yeah. framework of some things to consider while I voting. Say,
1: I would just say, you know, it's naive to think that there's an easier direct translation mm-hmm. to our political stances, mm-hmm. but, um, there are themes and images. I think that scripture that couches and holds Christ, um, can point us to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think maybe the question really is more like, how do these, what directions do these suggest? Mm. Or, gotcha. or followers, yeah. uh, without, without a clear-cut answer, some of them yeah. might might seem a little bit more straightforward. You know, yeah. but one of those is the spiritual practice of, of confession. Another would be, again, the the anchoring part of the story that God tells us in Jesus is one of power and strength. Mm. What saves? What heals? Mm. Well, some of that is, is is embodied in taking a witness pos- position. Which is not so much trying to direct but is a witness but is not policing society as much as it is point out its own power so that that's points right. us to paying attention to those people in the dusty corners that att- pays attention to uh, what's easily forgotten and pushed aside what's peripheralized um, um, i think it points us to being at least with the poor yeah that, that changes our perspective you know where yeah. we are is kind of the hermeneutic that's the that's one of the things that influences how we see. Um, and then I think that flows easily into the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that those somehow stand in isolation from the rest of what Jesus preaches and teaches and heals,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: because they really summarize and also they suggest, they point to their witnesses themselves to who Jesus is and what God is telling us in Jesus. Gotcha. Uh, so I think Sermon on the Mount isn't, it's not an attempt to prove text, it's just saying, these are some passages that really, when we come to talking about the larger world, particularly policy and voting and politics, mm-hmm. they really lay out a politics of Jesus.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus is consistent in his ministry, uh, connected to even the Sermon on the Mountain, how he lives and loves others. And so, yeah, yeah, that's definitely uh, not proof texting to to yeah. use that. All right, let's go through these one by one. Sure. Uh, I'll kind of read the header, and you can kind of tell yes. tell the people if there's more that you want to express from that or if there's um other thoughts you've had since or just anything you want to expound on it, but number one, you said we live in this world that scripture speaks to and pray for god's desire to take root as it does in heaven uh and and would that just be an understanding of like um even our prayer in the Lord's prayer that, that, uh, the kingdom of heaven would come here on earth. Like that, 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 that kind of image of like in the here and now that God can provide glimpses of shalom in the here and now, even as we are seeking that and working toward that in our world.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm going to forget the citation, but somewhere Paul talks about, um, basically gathering the ends of time. Mm. It's kind of the, the crisp That's kind of the place of people of Christ, people of the new creation, uh, standing kind of between the the dying a- aeon, the dying era, and the new aeon, the new era, the new mm. new age that, that's coming. Um, but yeah, but there's that that mirroring, that sinking of God's will, God's reign, God's desire, and we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. We see that in the the prayer that Jesus teaches us that there be mirroring, that there be connection. Mm. Uh, and to be able to receive that connection more so than making it happen more so than you know producing it okay uh, but something that, that, that is being made available but we need to have eyes to see it ears to hear it
0: good yeah anything else on one or can we go to two i think we can uh We've talked a little bit about one already with Shalom and some of the conversation we've had. Yeah. Um, So two, but it's naive to think there is an easy or direct translation to voting. Uh, Explain this a little bit. I I think you, you had talked a little bit about how um, you know, the win loss dynamic within voting can be somewhat suspect. Um, There's
1: there's certain things that I don't want to repeat all that we talked about earlier, but, there's just some things that are at least intention yeah. uh, between voting as well as understanding what, what we're doing when we vote. Mm. Um, Cause it really interpret, it's really interpreted and translated into policy um, and broad agenda mm-hmm. as opposed to specific, specific pieces that we want to see happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I just think that, the ways that the scripture, the themes that it suggests for us, we probably are better to breed more broadly than very specifically. I yeah. think we can take specific directions from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing would be is, is to probably be careful when we get caught up in a single issue, as if that yeah. somehow dominates all things. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it starts to uh, kind of also creates kind of a sense of perfection that if that is, if that, if we achieve this specific single goal, that the work is done. Mm. Whereas I think we're really kind of left with an ongoing matrix of, of trying to make life work, trying to receive what God has, uh, in the vision that Jesus gives us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I just wouldn't, I just be, I think we just need to be careful about quickly translating over from scripture to 21st century life in america um there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot to cover in that territory and just i think it's to be confessionally aware not to be too naive Mm. about about those suggestions about what about uh how that carries us
0: i also think what's interesting and i've been reflecting on a lot lately and this is mainly because there's just a lot of pastors with a cult of personality and i i i think in politics we see the same thing right sometimes i feel like people are just voting for an icon not necessarily a particular policy even they've just um whether that icon is an r or a d next to a name whether that icon is um a particular person and their background, uh, whatever that is too. I'm not saying it's even negative that they're voting for an icon. It might be that that icon most closely relates to them. This this candidate's a farmer, or this candidate's from the city, or this candidate's, you know, whatever, just fill in the blank. Um, so I'm not even saying the icon's bad, but I guess I'm saying like, it's interesting even to delineate how people approach voting because th- there's a lot of different ways people consider how who they vote for even in in ways that I don't even think we're sometimes aware of like how 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 much and then there's interesting things where on certain ballots you can have like a particular referendum where you're actually voting on a policy being enacted or not enacted and it's like I can't think of a time in my life where I've ever actually voted on a policy being enacted or not enacted on a ballot maybe I'm just ignorant and I don't remember that but um but even with that, like, it's like, that's a whole different thing. That's like a, an actual vote for a policy or not a policy. Cause sometimes you vote for a politician who says they're going to do something and then they never do that thing. They said they were going to do. So you voted on that policy, but then nothing actually changed. <laughs> it's an interesting thing voting. And again, like I said, Caesar didn't give Jesus or his followers a vote. So we should not make a one for one. Jesus would vote this way because we didn't see what that looked like. Like we didn't see what that looked like in the early church, even like there was no vote. So, uh, so that's important to be cautious, to be like, well, my side is the side that Jesus would be voting on oh. or this side, whatever, you know, like just being cautious about that and being aware of our own biases in voting even that might, we might not even be aware of. Is that, does that sound like something you've seen too? Like the icon? Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Okay. Honestly,
1: that's kind of the, even the origin of when I was responding. was, like, Of the things this person was presenting, I wouldn't disagree
2: mm-hmm.
1: necessarily with the things they were saying. This is how, this is what Jesus would be voting for. This is what Christians should be valuing. Mm-hmm. But none of them actually seemed germane towards the central thrusts of who Jesus is.
2: Mm-hmm. How,
1: how, the, how the scriptures present Jesus, how they remember him. Mm. Um, they were probably very comfortable for maintaining a kind of a world that some people would really like to see continued. Mm. Um, and I think comfort is one of those and underneath comfort is usually fear. Yeah. Cause comfort's like the, one of the worst things to guide us because comfort's usually just what we're familiar with. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure we could go back to a CrossFit analogy with that as well,
0: but uh, I'll um, refrain Okay. I've got all kinds of CrossFit analogies for comfort and growth, but we won't go there. All right. Number number three, because I got to save at least like one or two CrossFit analogies for later if something comes up. You know, I can't waste it there. No, I'm just kidding. All right. uh, Number three, uh, participating in communities that envision, invite, and can receive the new creation God is making in Christ trumps voting as a distinctly Christian way of citizenship. Uh, that's a lot there. I'm going to repeat it one more time. Participating in communities that envision, invite, and can receive the new creation God is making in Christ trumps voting as a distinctly Christian way of citizenship. Now, I, I feel like this one might need a little more unpacking. I, explain to people what you're referencing here on this one.
1: Um, really thinking about uh, kind of the, some of the ways the New Testament talks about being church. Mm. Um, and recognizing that church itself is a politic, that it is a way of being, it is a way of all the things you listed earlier about dispersing resources, about envisioning a, a, a vision, a goal, um, and that while as Americans, we put a lot of emphasis on voting and it has certainly has a place, some of the real work of of um, Christian distinctive ways of being citizens is being Christians is being the people of Jesus.
0: That witness that that leads us to witness again. Yeah.
1: And, but a key piece is receiving as opposed to kind of making the, the, uh, the new creation, but being available, having eyes to see, being able to welcome the ways that new creation is, is being given, being offered. Again, kind of going back to where Paul refers to uh, being standing in the gathering the ends of time, standing kind of in the middle between this age that is dying and being able to receive the new age that is coming through resurrection. Um, but yeah, I think, again, the temptation is to think that politics is what we do when we go to a voting booth. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not unimportant, but I think one of the keys is one of the best things we can do is simply be authentic, inspired, intentional followers of Jesus in the way of Jesus. That's one of the best gifts we can give our country is by being a people who um, are able to embody and speak and uh, pronounce and receive the kind of way of life that Jesus leads us to.
0: So, so you might even say like, our ability to accept the new creation that Christ is bringing forth in the here and now is also tied to our ability to not be so invested in the tables that we sit behind, but being open to the potential that new creation might mean that table gets flipped over, but Hey, there's something better on the other side.
1: And yeah, I mean, it's it's probably going to be something that I value that's going to get flipped over yeah faith and trust is is there going to be enough for me on the other side mm. you know is is there still you know is god's manna still there is, yeah. is there going to be enough is life still coming is is there a? and i think that's that's one of the challenges we have when we have to kind of face into those loyalties that we hold
0: mm. you know this 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 table flipping analogy is so fascinating because i just think of uh, well, I think of the movie, the Crudes. I don't know if you've, you've ever watched, have you ever watched the movie, the Croods yeah, it's where so it's well. like, where it's like um, the dad just wants to stay in the cave and stay safe. Like, does that make sense? But then there's like so much opportunity outside of the cave and, and, uh, and ultimately like if you're just, you know, unable to see the potential, right. Because you're so caught up in this fear of like, we got to stay safe and we got to stay in the cave. And ultimately, like Christ is consistently taking risks. Like Jesus, is first thing he does is walk his disciples into Samaria. What a risk that is! But then sends them into this town in Samaria alone. He doesn't even go with them as their rabbi. Like he and, and like you just think of how risky that 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 is right off the bat. Like, and it's a political statement in itself. Going walking through Samaria, but um. But like Jesus is constantly pushing us outside of comfort zones. You don't get to stay in the cave if you follow Jesus. like you're gonna be pushed to take risks always for the sake of love. but um but i, I and I think that has to in some ways have us be open to losing at times. like I think that's where we we struggle. We want we almost have a competitive edge to always win, uh even in our faith and in our politics in the sense of like sometimes that thing that we're invested in needs to die and we need to lose that like because in losing that we might actually get something that's actually going to be better for us and better for uh, everyone like that there's something deeper here that we are in the cave and we see the value of this cave for us but we're missing how there could be so much more value for us and others um, outside of this bubble that we've created, or this thing that ultimately we feel like is what we have to hold on to
1: you'd think we hadn't been baptized into death and resurrection you'd think we you know we, yeah. you'd think we'd skip the death part <laughs> if you know that we would we would know something about that
0: yeah well so, um that's a that's a good word right there yeah <laughs> all right, number four uh yeah. speak confessionally as it is true. We only see through a glass dimly. Um, And you continue going on recognizing that in following Jesus, our loyalties are tested. Um, And we might put this in its entirety, or I don't know if you want to add any edits before we would post it, but we can probably post something uh, on our website, like a blog type post uh, to where people can can read this in its fullness. As obviously you're just hearing me read it, you know, but some of you might want to actually go and, really read through it carefully, but you've talked a lot about speaking confessionally already. Anything to add as you look at this kind of fourth um, point? Um, I think it just opens up the ability to be more
1: honest about uh, the complexities of what we respond to in the world and the complexities that we bring. Mm. I think it, it, it can really build a real degree of freedom Yeah, for, for us to be able to, you know, it also opens up doors for me if I can, if I can approach somebody confessionally with this stance, I'm not needing to defend my position. Yeah, and because you know we get sucked into such silos where we're only talking and really um, conversing with the people who we agree, already agree with. Mm. And I would think that if we can, you know, when we can have very deep kind of conversations with people, when we can let go of our need to defend this, this card, I, I'd like to believe. Mm-hmm. If this kind of starts to discard some of our needs to defend because we recognize, as I said, referred to earlier, if I believed some of the same things I believed when I was 12, 13, 14 years old,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that would be a real problem for me as a as an adult man mm-hmm. you know? um, and recognize that we do change. We should be understanding things. Change by itself doesn't mean we flip flop. Sometimes change is just, I know more. Mm-hmm. You know, but also being aware of the things that have led us to know things differently. What are the experiences that I would think, you know, for believers, but also like how do I bring that into conversation with scripture? How do I bring that into conversation with others?
0: Mm, that's good. That's
1: yeah.
0: Uh number five, God's word in the Christ ken- uh, kenotic. uh uh so Philippians two, six, self-emptying power. Um, yeah, I think I think that that image of of Christ championing the least of these, and ultimately, it is through self sacrificial love that Christ's power is enacted, um, actualized, if you will. Uh, speak more about that because so much of our politics is about power. And well, it's a, specific, it's
1: a specific understanding of power as power over, as coercion, yes, yes. as dominion. Yeah. But I suspect we've all probably hopefully have all had some people in our lives where we experienced uh, these were very powerful people because Mm -hmm. they came alongside me Mm -hmm. or they drew me to something that I couldn't see. Um, And we can pretty quickly recognize that power is sometimes the ability to navigate and swim through difficulties. It's not necessarily dominion Mm -hmm. or or the ability to come alongside of and lift somebody up um
0: so so real quick a power that manipulates or a power that serves would that be a fair way in some Uh, ways of like sounds good to me pastor i mean well well i i mean i do think like power over ultimately desires control Mm -hmm. um power that serves is more interested in love and um identifying the need does that make sense then than necessarily like I don't know. Yeah, that 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 just connected for me, but go go ahead.
1: A lot of a lot of power over that desire for control, a lot of control is I don't trust or I'm fearful. You know, that can be I don't trust you to do this the way I want it to be done, yeah. only I can do it the right way. At, at some like basic level. Yeah. Um, but it's also can be and that's not a lot different from I need to have power over things because I'm seeking safety because I'm not sure that it's coming to me as opposed to a power that is not as tied up in safety because there's some assurance, there's some kind of some kind of sense of being cared for already. I think, again, it goes back to that question about mana. Is there enough? Yeah. Is there enough in the world or, or is it a world of scarcity? Um, and so I think, so, so therefore, I don't need to be center stage but I can bring somebody else and have their gifts really be amplified at a certain kind of time. That would be, I think some of the functional ways we see that playing out.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how fear so frequently impacts us. I want to say this as base level human beings, but then certainly the more we get into political structures how quickly fear can be used as a tool to organize people toward a particular policy or against a particular thing or structure or, you know, whatever Um, fear is a big part of politics. And there's just this repeat in scripture of like, we're not to have a spirit of fear. Like this isn't what's supposed to direct our decisions. This isn't what's supposed to, influence our being we're, we're called to be um, influenced by love not by fear like uh, but sometimes even and this is where it comes back to that confessional piece it's like sometimes we're we're making decisions out of fear and we don't even know it like we we just we haven't even actually done the digging to recognize that the root of that decision is coming from a place of fear or you know that in some ways, maybe even that survivalistic tendency that we have evolutionarily speaking of like, I have to have everything I can or else I'm not going to make it. Like, uh, you know what I mean? That, 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 that feeling of, like you said, not enough. Like, um,
1: and and I think a lot of our experience for many people is like, no, I don't have enough. mm. There's reasons for fear. Yeah. Yeah, It also requires a certain kind of community that's able to start to teach that fear does not rule the day Mm. and again the core of the faith is that even when things seemed like it was all done that love was resurrected and truth rose up Mm. you know that that we kind of live with that that's that's really kind of a core of the faith is that that despite in the face of overwhelming fear and reasons to be afraid Mm. that life surges again
0: resurrection is possible Yeah. Even in our circumstances where we might be most fearful, resurrection is possible. No, that's good. Okay. uh, Six. The Sermon on the Mount is not written in Greek with imperatives, but descriptive. The poor are blessed. You referenced this already. um, And we've talked a lot about the Sermon on the Mount. um, But ultimately, as we reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, this being Jesus's inaugural sermon, I think is important for people to recognize like, this is kind of Jesus coming on the scene and saying like, uh, I have some things to say and, uh, (laughs) and and they're, they're a little bit different than some of the uh, other rabbis out here talking about uh, who God is and how he would desire to, to relate. Um, And this championing of the poor one of the things we haven't reflected on that's connected to this is that like this would have like been known Jesus is pretty consistently like lumped in with this like um healer of the sick like includer of the outcast um uh even he's even called a friend of sinners as if that's a negative thing right um because his his inclusive nature um, and which is so interesting that those who are, you know, the Pharisees or Sadducees or, you know, religious leaders of the day are like, those are the sinners. We're not like that that kind of even like, uh, language in itself even is, uh, an interesting uh, statement of its own. But ultimately, Jesus is pretty consistent throughout his ministry with what he says here. On the Sermon on the Mount, like it's he he does not stray from these um, teachings, even in his own uh, like through through his own years of ministry and leadership and interactions with people. I mean I even think about how there's the call to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and I think about how Jesus um, even as he's being taken into custody to ultimately be crucified um is uh healing someone who Peter is responding to in a violent way um and then even as he's hanging on a cross probably experiencing a pain that none of us could even come close to 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 considering he's literally praying to the father forgive them they don't know what they're doing like this this again concern for them above even himself this love of enemy um so I just think of even that as like there's a consistency throughout Jesus's life and ministry to what's being said on this sermon. As Jesus placed it as emphasis for his ministry, we should probably place it as emphasis for how to order our lives to some degree, right?
1: I think what you're saying is, about I hear you saying is that most of what else is recorded are illustrations and anecdotes of enacting the Sermon on the Mount. Sure, this is what God desi- this. This is the world that God desires
0: yeah
1: and here are all these other kinds of examples and that that touches also on witness if if we're being witnesses that are authentic like james says true religion authentic religion yeah it's gonna have to engage with this yeah it's gonna have to to be conversant with with what we see summarized or like the big arching structure of what jesus is about his agenda
0: Um, yeah it's been shocking to me as a pastor to to see the ways that I was even taught in Bible school to ignore passages of the the Sermon on the Mount or explain away, well, you can't really do that. Like you can't really love your enemies like, uh, or well, love your enemies, but there's also a line there. You can't, you know, like, and, and just like these, uh, uh, again, uh, a commitment to a certain way of doing things, a certain structure, a certain, you know, power dynamic that, can't envision a way of loving enemies to the point of self-sacrificial, like sacrificing something personally in that exchange, right? Um, because that would require us to not be in control, us to not have power.
1: Yeah, where are the literalists when you need them? You
0: know? <laughs> yeah, don't don't read the Sermon on the Mount literally; it might ruin your life. I think Shane Claiborne said that, <laughs> or some someone said that. I one of my favorite one of my favorite. Uh, um, Oh, is it Tolstoy? I think it's Tolstoy. Uh no, was it no? It was um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna. Oh, oh, Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard. Oh. Kierkegaard said, Um, what is the institution of higher learning for the Bible? It is like, and he just like said all these terrible things about it. He's like, it's the worst thing ever. It's pretty much our entire way of just throwing away the words of Jesus, and he said, Oh, to be alone with the new Testament. It'll, ru- <laughs> it'll ruin your life. Is what I think he's <laughs> so uh, here's the ruining your life. Read the sermon on the Mount yeah. and uh, try to put that into practice. Uh, yeah. But ultimately in, in, in losing our life, we find our life like in that kind of pouring out of, of like, and I think that's what Kierkegaard went on to say. And like in the ruins, we actually find this resurrection life that's so much more, uh, shalom than us trying to explain away the words of Jesus and kind of take lean up against the lamppost instead of actually look where it's pointing and consider actually going that direction. Like uh, I'm going to continue, man, I'm going to use that one. some to, to forever. That's a great one. Um, <laughs> anything else on the sermon on the Mount before we, uh, before we move on here? Yeah,
2: good. Good.
0: All right. This, the Hebrew scriptures aspire to shalom an integrated wholeness of peace, uh, in which creation is in right relationship. Um, and you also kind of add to that, that, uh, Shalom is extended as well, as well to, um, aliens of the land, which I think is very interesting. As I think about the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures had a lot to say about welcoming the foreigner and the alien and an inclusion of sorts, uh, in the, in the outcast in that way that the, the foreigner.
1: Well, and you know, the nature of Shalom is it's not Shalom if it's restricted. Yeah. It has to be extended. Mm. And and unless you allow it to like bloom and to grow, that's yes. not Shalom. And so part of the policies of, of the, uh, you know, the Commonwealth of Israel and the kingdoms of Israel was a sense of inclusion of those that they consider to be aliens, mm-hmm. outsiders, to at least outsiders of their own community were still, mm-hmm. they were still blessed to like use Jesus language later on because the nature of Shalom, if you limit it, it's not really Shalom.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not that whole, so whole full, extensive kind of connection because again, it goes back to right relationships.
0: And the idea of even God's blessing in some ways being Shalom here is that God was blessing Israel to be a blessing to all of his creation is, is kind of the imperative here is that like that, that, that Israel was operating. The Hebrew people were operating as God's blessed in order that they might be a blessing. And ultimately through Jesus, we see, you know, the fullness of that blessing to all humanity. But even in that idea, um, Shalom is not possible unless everyone's allowed to participate because, There is no wholeness if, yeah, like you said, those, if people are, are left out or people aren't included or invited to it. And I think it's the same way with the gift of Christ. It's like, um, if Jesus was exclusive just to you and I, for example, or to a certain select group of people, um, where's the good news in that? Like, where's the, where's the what's good about that? Like, it's hard to, to, to find what's good about that. That's uh, that's good. Um, So we should be envisioning how our politics um, are inclusive in some sense, right? Like how, uh, who's, who's left out of this or who's not included. So like, I mean, I'm just going to say it and this might sound partisan, but it's not. I mean, I think we see this on both sides in a lot of ways is like, america first or uh you know just this idea of like um centered on myself or centered on my experience even let's just not even make it about america first a, a politics that's centered only on my experience in a lot of ways can deny the shalom ethic of like everyone's included and invited into this and how do i how do I broaden this out and have a diversity of perspectives, even in um, my politics? And that's not to say there's not value in considering how our politics are going to affect America. We are Americans. The, it, it should, we, we should consider how it's going to affect America. So I'm not trying to say America first is a bad idea. I'm just saying sometimes when I hear that, what I hear is America only or like that kind of perspective of like, we're not part of a larger uh, group of nations that ultimately we have a significant influence over or that ultimately our um, structure can can have an impact on uh, their well-being and and I want to consider that I want because because Shalom considers that it doesn't just invite me to participate it's it's an invitation to all and so uh, this is the tension right of being kingdom people who are kingdom minded and and ecumenical in that right and inclusive and then uh entering into a system that so often creates boundaries and borders and um walls between these things right
1: Well, again if we hear america first as america only that's if our concern around that is if not then there's not enough for me
0: Mm, back to the
1: kind of i think again it kind of goes back to is is God's scarcity is god's Justice and God's mercy and God's goodness, bountiful. Mm. Now that might mean I don't get all that I want, but but is there enough for me? And I think some of that some of that is the fear: is if we extend this, then there's not enough for me.
0: Yeah, it's back to that like scarcity mindset, is what it really seems. Yeah, so interesting that that's kind of connected to so many of these. All right, number eight: Communion Eucharist extends this as a practice and vision for economics and right relationships in which everyone is fed and former enemies celebrate reconciliation. And, uh, you're, you're probably referencing a lot of acts right there. I would assume, right? Kind of the, the, and we, we talked about this already. Uh, Talk for a moment about, you know, uh, what's so interesting is in the book of acts, you have this moment where the early church begins to sell their houses, like sell their property bring the money to the church and say we need to use this to care for the poor care for the widows Um, they begin to see their excess does that make sense things that they maybe had but they didn't need and they begin to hold everything in common Um, and you even have this very interesting story of Ananias and Sapphira where uh, they choose to lie about that how much they sold it for and like there's this whole this whole conversation about the 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 judgment that kind of comes on them for uh you know some will say it's for lying some will say it's from withhold for withholding uh there's a variety of perspectives on that but ultimately this is a central conversation of the early church that they are selling things um united in community in a way that, that, that they are seeing themselves as a collective. Now, some will argue theologically speaking or historically speaking, probably more so than theologically speaking, that this was necessary for survival in Rome as an underclass of Christians um, being persecuted. Um, And, and that may very well be the case. Um, But then there's all this argument of, so how much of that informs how we choose to use our resources, how we, what we choose to sell and, and give and um find in common with one another, even as you reference communion, like this, this idea of what we have in common. Uh Speak to that a little bit about, cause, cause you reference economics here and that was the economics of the day following Jesus radically transformed your economics in the first century. It may not today, it may not change anything, or maybe your church encourages you to, you know, tithe 10% or give as you see fit, whatever. But in at this time, it was a pretty radical economic transition to become a Christian.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, when I was living in Los Angeles, the, the cost of living is excessive. Mm. And I was struck with a couple of things in, in some of the folks. Uh, it, one, one would be a general sense of loneliness and the difficulty just in paying rent And I was thinking so many times of people, if they could merge some of their resources together, it starts to chip away at both of those things. Mm. Um, But that kind of sense of, of, of a sharing of, of, of giving and receiving of uh, offering ourselves at that kind of intimate level of even housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I don't like, you know, glorify or romanticize living with roommates. I've done it before, it's not, you know. But uh, um, but just looking at how so much of our loneliness in America is driven by um, the ways we are separated. Mm. And the lack our, our of-
0: Our isolation.
1: Our isolation,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. okay. Uh, in terms of the hours we pour into work, uh, the ways we're fractured in terms of even how we have, how housing is developed um the um the, the privacy we surround around how much we in, how much how much income we have because how that's tied to our identity our understanding of ourselves whether we're successful or not how safe we are i think in a lot of ways um and you know kind of a counter move behind that is the early church's practice and i don't know that we need to bring a directly again it i don't want to be naive and bringing that it must look directly yeah. like acts yeah. two but it um, it was a means of survival you know it, it made things possible that weren 't possible without it. Uh, it might bring its own problems but but it again is extending so many of the practices, so much of what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount again is extending what it is to when Jesus goes and he breaks bread and fish serves fish. And suddenly there's enough. There's enough. Mm. There's more than enough. Um, it's, uh, but it also mirrors the last supper, you know, yeah. even enemies are fed, but it also like, you know, even at the end of revelation, there's the story of even the very Kings who rebelled against God end up at that wedding feast in the end. You know, okay. it's still like, it's still the, that, uh, that meal of peace that's, that God's even able to reconcile Judas. Mm-hmm. Judas is still fed.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, I think this is, this is probably, again, it's one of those things. that's not so much an answer. It's suggestive. It tells us it, it's, it's one of the things that, you know, it continually you open it up and it mind, you, you mind it for more and more and more about what it can suggest about what's possible. Earlier you were suggesting, you know, just that confessional route can lead for some real imagination at some point. I think, again, practices of like this, practices of communion like this, mm. as we enter into it more deeply, it keeps suggesting more and more things mm. of how do we organize life? How do we, uh, uh, how do we provide? How do we extend resources? Uh, but again, I think part of, part of that basic give and take is that whoever is, no matter what, how little you have, you bring something. Mm. You know, it starts to, It works against the idea of just handing things out yeah you know even if you have a little you bring what you bring what you have and it's part and it's valued you know you can look at that in terms of uh what people bring what the kind of gifts not not financial gifts but just the the talents and p- things people bring to any kind of project mm-hmm.
2: you know?
1: when you can include even the smallest of those gifts yeah it changes the character of what that project's like
0: definitely yeah no that's good um do you... Well, okay, so I lived in an intentional community for a season when I lived in Boston, actually. Um, and I wanna say there was like 15 to 20 of us in the house and it kind of alternated at times, like there were people that moved out, moved in during my time there, so. Um, but we did morning devotionals every morning and like no matter who, whoever had to get up the earliest, that's when we had to set our alarms to get out. <laughs> and, uh And yeah, and then we would all go back to bed. We'd get up and and go back to bed, for those of us who didn't have to. Um, But I'll say this, um, I was never lonely when I lived in that house. Um, Even just hearing you say that, like I was frustrated at times with having roommates. I had my own space, I had my own room, Brittany and I did. Uh, We were married and living there at that time. and being married and living in a space like that is another thing. Um, but, but also like, uh, like grocery shopping and all these other things you do life together in a different way. You, you, you think about others in a different, you're open to listening more to others experience because you have to, like you, you just, you have to be considerate. And if you're not, it's going to, it's not something you can hide let's put it that way if you're if you're not a considerate person it's gonna come out in conversation it's gonna have to be addressed because you just can't live in that space uh for for that long without that and we've all had roommate troubles before probably and if you haven't good for you but um but at the same time like just more saying like there is value in um pulling our resources together and being in those spaces even beyond the potential economic value of, of bringing our resources together in that um, being in each other's life in a more um, close way isn't always negative. I I think in our culture, we're kind of taught that privacy coming home and being by ourself is a way of winding down, which it is. Don't get me wrong. Like I enjoy that space too, but um and I'm not by myself. I got three kids, <laughs> but uh, but but I guess what I'm saying is like even with my three kids, like you know, there's times where they'll they'll want my attention. I'm like, hey, this is my time. I'm I'm having some of my time right now. So like I think I think having our own time is good. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like um, even reimagining like for those of us who are in a position to say, hey, what does it look like for me to consider? You know, I I, I feel kind of lonely. How could I expand? my you know connection with others and maybe that'll even impact my resources and how i'm able to use those in a more broad way loving way you know um sustainable way uh the the, i think i think at the very least acts two gives us permission to explore that if i'm gonna
1: obviously give you a need for matthew 16 and 18 because we're going to need to figure out how to (laughs) How to reconcile? How to make some peace with yeah. each other really well. Again, yeah. I think it goes back. We need these other practices if this is going to work. Yeah. And so it's not just dealing with like my loneliness, yeah. which is kind of narcissistic. But but here's a way of being human. Yeah. And here are some things. That are, and by the way, you're going to need some of these other things to do that.
0: Yeah, gonna forgiveness gonna to, is going to be important.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to need. You're going to need. Uh, you're going to need to look at what power is like. Okay? Yeah. You're going to need to be able to, have to figure some ways about it. How do we, once we know each other, uh, we're going to bind you from these things, but we're going to loose you from these other things. We're going, we're going to make it, because we're going to have to, because we're knowing each other.
0: Yeah. It's living, living in an intentional community is a mini political experiment all its own. Of sorts. that's maybe the way of saying it. <laughs> all right. Uh, number nine, Jesus inaugurates his ministry by citing and practicing the Jubilee. We can't understand Jesus without understanding the practice of jubilee. Now we haven't talked at all about jubilee up to this point. So if someone's listening to this, they're like, what's jubilee? What's that about? Tell people what jubilee is and why it matters. So in Luke four,
1: Jesus starts his ministry. And he sits down and he reads from Isaiah. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he kind of lists off a couple other things about uh, the imprisoned and the blind and and, and that kind of thing. And, and he's referring to this whole practice of Jubilee from the scriptures that he heard as a child and grew up with, which is a practice of every seven years debts are forgiven. Mm. And every seven times seven years, there's a whole rollback around massive debt and lands are returned to the families that had them. You know, Cause it's, it was a world, it was an agrarian world uh, which people would rack up debt and they would lose their lands Mm-hmm. And they would become tenant farmers, or uh, on lands that were held ancestrally, and uh, and uh, and so it's a proclamation of of uh, liquidation of very real financial debt. Um, so yeah, because the practice, the hypothetical practice, anyway.
0: I was going to say, do we know that ju that that jubilee ever actually occurred?
1: The thing is that. We don't really know that. That's why I said it's a hypothetical practice. In theory, It would be that if I borrow money from you, Mm -hmm. it's fine for you to loan me money in the first or second year. But as the years go on, you're going to be much more hesitant to loan me money because you know, as the seventh year comes upon, if it's actually practiced, they're going to simply liquidate and forgive the debt. Yeah. Okay. Which is probably also a reference that Jesus has in the Lord's prayer forgiving giving debt, for you know, mm-hmm. referring back to that. Well, that's really good news if you're indebted in crushing debt. You know, not so much just commercial, not so much um you know, consumer debt, but just the debt that just squeezes the life out of a life of a family. Mm. And so Jesus begins, that's kind of an overarching proclamation. And he, whether they practice it in the past or not, he's saying, But the acceptable the year of the, the acceptable year of the Lord. It's now Mm. we might've talked about it before I'm calling for this to be put into practice. And, you know, we can allegorize that to the ways of of forgiveness in a spiritual internal level and forgiveness between relationships and um, the freedom of ways we're um, held in bondage to all kinds of other kinds of things. But at a very literal level, Jesus is also, speaking about a proclamation of freedom.
0: Mm. I even think about, uh, doesn't the parable of, like, doesn't the parable begin, um, the kingdom of God is like a king who went to settle debts. Like, (laughs) I even think of that as like, that's a Jubilee metaphor of sorts. This person owed an unpayable debt, unable to pay uh, how much they owed and uh, the debt's forgiven. Um, Now, obviously that person goes out and then, has their own debt book and and that's a whole nother you know conversation but but I guess like this this idea of debt is is it exists in our world obviously in america debt is is a real thing so Jesus' kind of proclamation here in luke four could you argue it's him saying like I'm part of the jubilee party you don't even know this party like like this is this is central to my message is that um uh like i i'm here for 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 things to for for things to be loosened here that that have bound people
1: i don't think i ever thought about it as the jubilee party but i think that would be a way (laughs) that's probably a way that think about the people who are first sitting and hearing that yeah now the response i think is that they drive him out of town (laughs) okay but um but for others, they're, you know, does like, that
0: be Be clear? That is the actual response, correct? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. like that, yeah. that's that's yeah. that's the actual response. Jesus opens this, reads this, says this, and then is driven out of the town.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so again, if if we start to really understand that he's saying, we've heard this. Our forefathers have the sacred texts. The stories have told us this. I'm calling that this is something we should enact now suddenly we start to understand why people
0: might not want him in town yeah I, I think i have a lot of people that owe me debts i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to default on that 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 right. was
1: <laughs> i think we see that threaded though throughout so much of jesus ministry is this yeah. proclamation okay is and this is and what he says is and this is the acceptable year of the lord mm. this is acceptable this mm. is again god's desire and again i think we can we can analogize that to all the other ways that jesus can be referring to that all the things we're held in bondage to all the ways we're blind um all the things we owe debt to but at some level he is again speaking quite politically here yeah the jubilee party i don't i don't think i ever thought about it as the i'm announcing the jubilee party (laughs) yeah this is my this is my agenda
0: I, I think I think it's fair. I mean, and I think the other thing to really think about is Jesus is also proclaiming freedom for the people who hold debts, yeah. who hold on to that kind of power structure where they have power over people in the way that they hold debt over people. That the the release, I think, of Jubilee we often see only as releasing the person who who has the debt, right? Who 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 feels the weight of the debt that they owe, right? But the person who even has that, we always see them as like the loser. Because again, we think in winners are losers, but it's like, it does something to your spirit when you hold something over somebody for such a long period of time. And I think Jesus knows that there's this disconnect between humanity and ultimately seeing each individual as an image bearer of God when you hold a certain amount of power over them. Um, And certainly in uh, a financial sense or in a land sense, in a sense of identity, too, because so much of the land was attached to that family identity, that, you know, uh, lineage and line, which is very important in scriptural times. uh, You know, New Testament and Old Testament times, your lineage played a huge role in your identity in comparison to like, you know, currently it still does, but not, not in that same way and especially connected to land. I learned that when I actually went to Israel. You know, cool. so much of what we see in Israel and Palestine is so deeply connected to this heritage of land and this connection to the land that um you know, I grew up in Indiana and like I drive past the farm that I grew up on and I'm like, "Oh, cool. Look at that. They put up a different building or they did this," but it's like I don't feel any like call or desire to go back to that land and live on that land. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um but there is this like deep connection to the land and heritage and And that, and so in ancient times, that would even be a deeper connection, I think, uh, in that, in that time. So like the idea of releasing to where a family could go back to the land uh, or, or have ownership of the land. There's this freedom that, uh, that, that Jesus is announcing the Jubilee party. Jubilee party.
1: Yeah.
0: We'll have to to coin that. I don't know. Maybe not. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right, let's move on to 10. This is the last one. Scripture doesn't speak of life with the term sanctity or that life itself is ultimate, but rather that all life is created and a gift of God. Now, obviously that's probably referencing a particular political topic, which we'll probably refrain from getting into, but at the same time, I think life in general, uh, God is a supporter of life, uh, we, we see that um in 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 general, and um, explain kind of what you 're referencing here. I mean you could take this so many different directions. you could take this about a peace ethic about um obviously the the what i 'm referencing you know pro life pro choice like you could take this to how we uh, provide health care even in our country, for example like there 's just so many directions you can go when you just talk about people's ability to live life. And now we're in the middle of a pandemic. So you can bring that into it because that influences how we are able to live healthy in our world. Like, so talk a little bit about what you meant here with this 10th point. Yeah, and I am responding to something
1: very specific.
0: Again, that was like, yeah,
1: a list of things. And I'm surely not going to be somebody who is going to say life is not sacred in some ways, but I'm not really aware that the, the Bible speaks of life in that term. Mm. Um, usually when it talks about life being made sacred or holy, it's set aside, you know, mm. somebody's life is set aside,
0: set apart, yeah. set
1: apart and yeah. like the real kind of uh, raw literal term of holy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but the scriptures do speak very consistently that life, it's always a gift. Mm. Um, creation is a gift. Life is a gift. Um, and it's all created and so it should be it's a part of our spent part of not being god is to receive life as a gift mm. um yeah, and so. so you know what's how does that affect how we how we look at life when whatever form it comes to us in you know so yeah so that that i think speaks about standing for protecting but also it's going to be informed by things like shalom mm-hmm. communion jubilee um confession some of those other kinds of things feeds how we approach life. So we're not just talking about, you know, in this position pro-life, which is in some ways is pro-birth, mm-hmm. but we're talking about life across the spectrum of all arcs of life, mm-hmm. all walks of life, all different faces of life, even our enemy, you know, to be, to be truly pro-life is like, how do I, how am I invested in my enemy's life? Mm. Um, so, it, so I think it, it's like a matter of really standing for, for God who, Gives us life, gives yeah. us all life as, as a created gift and receiving it as a gift. Uh, so, you know, I think there you can apply that very easily to a lot of the kind of the policy kinds of things about caring for, you know, prenatal health, caring for, providing adequate um, health care,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, sound education. Um, um, it talks about how we take care of prisoners. Those who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Um, how do we treat how do we treat those who have injured society itself? Mm -hmm.
0: Um, and like asylum seekers. And asylum seekers, yeah. yeah, Um, yeah.
1: It you know, it it talks to us as, you know, uh, how do we even when violence is done towards us, how do we stand for life in the face of violence that can actually injure me and or my the people I love? Mm -hmm. You know it's one of the things about becoming a parent I learned I'm not nearly as invested in my own life, except to the degree of wanting to be around for my, my family's life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think it has those kind of, again, it's suggestive about how do we extend Shalom practice communion, uh, proclaim Jubilee mm. that's dealing with the wholeness, the, the fullness and the depth and the life across the arc of of time.
0: Mm. And I think in that also like, yeah. How invested are we in our own life in the sense of, again, a love for self that out of that flows an ability to love others, like love your neighbor as yourself, this, this back to this piece of like, uh, God advocating for us to even be concerned with our own life, our own well being in, in some regard here, like not in a selfish way, but in a way that ultimately honors ourself, um, honors the creation of God and the image of God that is within us. Um, yeah, this is, this is an interesting list here. Tom, I, I want to thank you for this top 10 list. Do you have any closing thoughts to give the belong collective on politics, losing the kingdom, gaining the world, or just in general, this season? I know this will probably air on what november 1st is a sunday right so it'll probably air november 1st the second portion of this so i guess what you'll be saying right now will be fresh in their mind two days before entering that voting booth assuming they haven't voted you know early but uh but yeah what what are your thoughts as we head into this week of what will likely be a lot of tension or just final kind of closing words
1: thank you pastor justin for the time it's been fun to talk this through a little bit with Again I think these these kind of conversations um, don't happen enough
2: yeah
1: i'm sure I'm sure they are happening in certain places, but we can it's so easy to get swept up into all the fear um the rhetoric um, to be kind of owned by those bigger principalities and powers, mm-hmm. and to kind of forget ourselves. I think you know again, one of the key pieces is one of the best gifts we can give our nation as citizens is to be the church is to be the ecclesia that Paul experimented with to be the people of, um, you know, Jesus Jubilee party, perhaps. Um, but to be a people because it helps, it helps the, the nation see itself and to be able to keep that the Jesus story alive, the spirit of Jesus to welcome that, uh, in the ways we are with each other, the ways we treat ourselves as well. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, we, can, we can draw on this a little bit later as well, but uh, Desmond Tutu, Bishop from South Africa, said, uh, Our God is an expert at dealing with chaos, with brokenness, with all the worst that we can imagine. God created order out of disorder, cosmos out of chaos, and God can do so always, can do so now, in our personal lives and in our lives as nations globally. Indeed, God is transforming the world now through us because God loves us.
0: Mm. that's a that's a good word i think that's a good spot to close can you read that one more time for people and we're just going to close with you reading that uh as we close out our politics series here go ahead and read that one more time for us
1: our god is an expert at dealing with chaos with brokenness with all the worst that we can imagine god created order out of disorder cosmos out of chaos And God can do so always and can do so now in our personal lives and in our lives as nations globally. Indeed, God is transforming the world now through us because God loves us. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Tom.
1: Thank you.